You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of James. Here's Nate. Well, the wonderful thing about the book of James is that James leaves no stone unturned. In other words, James is chasing out seemingly every single subject of life. For him, faith impacts everything. To say that we believe in Jesus, to say that we love Jesus, uh, in James's scheme, there will be evidence of that in various areas of life. Just as if I came to you and said something to you like, I enjoy running, which by the way, I do. You would find evidence of that in my home in the form of apparel and gear. You would find evidence of that in my schedule. In short, my time and my treasure would in some way be pointed to the thing that I claim to love. And in James chapter 4 verse 13 on into chapter 5, James deals with those two subjects, our time and our treasure, and that our Time and treasure, if we say we love Jesus, if we say we have faith, there will be some evidence of it that begins to grow inside of our lives in both of those areas. First of all, concerning our time, he says in verse 13, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. One of the things that James wants these people to do is to simply consider the absolute brevity of life. He says, you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. But the first thing that he gets after when it comes to the way that they spend their time is the self-confident claim that they were making. Some of them were saying, hey, listen, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And so the question that we need to ask here initially is, is the Bible and is God anti-planning and preparation and forward thinking? And I think in one sense, we could say absolutely not because God himself is the greatest of all planners, his creation, a very orderly, very thorough, very thought through. But then beyond that, when God spoke to Adam and Eve and said, listen, you should not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. When Adam and Eve did eat of that fruit, it was amazing because God immediately had a plan in place. He announced there in Genesis chapter 3 that a moment in time would come when the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. He was speaking and foreshadowing that gospel message that he would send his son to substitutionally die for the sin of all of mankind. And of course, the Old Testament is the story of that plan unfolding slowly but surely, the birth of a nation, the selection of a tribe, the prophets, the kings, and then finally the birth of the Messiah from the line of David. 
And so God is a planner. And beyond that, you read the book of Proverbs and you discover that God is interested in thinking of crops and flocks and possessions and being a thorough, detailed uh, person who uh, does well with and faithful with the things of life. That word say, when he says, come now you who say, it's a word that comes from the Greek word logos or logos, indicating logical thought. So is James rebuking logical thought? No, here's what he's rebuking. Logical thought that refuses to involve God in the process. Notice all of their self-confidence. God is not mentioned in the timing in the location, in the length, in their occupation, or in the consideration of whether they will have success or not. God is not, God is not mentioned in the process. And that might be fine for the non-believing world, but for a believer in Christ. When Jesus gets inside of your life and inside of your heart, when he becomes real to you, there will be a thing that births within you where you will want him to be involved in the details of your life. And so James here mentions that. Listen, he, he rebukes that kind of person. It's good for us to remember the gospel and to remember that, that if we've believed in Christ, we've been purchased by Christ. We are under new management. We are now owned by the Lord himself. And so James says to them in verse 14, a very straightforward statement, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. That is the absolute truth. The reality is that we do not know what's around the corner. We shouldn't have this self-confidence and self-sufficiency because we don't know what's around the corner. And it's true that only God accurately understands and knows what's coming up inside of our lives. Proverbs 27 verse 1, do not boast about tomorrow. For you do not know what a day may bring. And to me, at least, I think it would be incredibly horrible, but also boring if we knew every detail of life before it occurred. So many things in life, the greatest trials that we've faced, to know about those in advance would make it so painful as we approach the date of that trial. And other things, the blessings of life, we might be discontent in the more mundane seasons of life if we knew that that season of blessing and rejoicing was right around the corner. I am so thankful that only God knows. And so James asks them then a question. What is your life? And that's where he says, this is what your life is. You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. The reality is that our time is very short. Uh, what most people realize near the end of life, James wants us to discover now in life. You know, many people and some do have that luxury of seeing death approaching and coming for them. Some, of course, die abruptly. But for many, there is the understanding that my days are numbered Death is here. Death is knocking at the door. But James wants us to understand that today, that our time is very short, that it's a mist, that it's a breath, that it's a puff of smoke. 
and that we're to number our days, Proverbs 90, verse 12, to, so that we might get a heart of wisdom. You know, if we just thought about our life here on earth in comparison to the length of eternal life in the presence of God, we, of course, know that that life is a life that will never end. And so there's no number you can put on it. Eternity is outside of time and space as we might think of it. But just think of it in one sense. Let's say we just imagined it only being one billion years in length. Now, of course, that sells eternity far short, but no one has ever lived a billion years. And so just imagine that most of our life, the eternal part of it, is one billion years. And here on this life, we have 80 or 90 years. I think it puts it into perspective. That's why James is able to say that our lives here on earth are simply a mist. And it's important for us to live lives here on earth, this little mist of an opportunity, to live lives that in a billion years, we will celebrate the decisions that we made during this 80-year window of time. Some people have said it this way, a believer should work on the important but not urgent things of life. Now that's a phrase borrowed from the business community and the productivity uh, community. The idea being that so often what we work on are the urgent, not important things, that pesky email or that uh, exclamation mark filled text message. It's urgent, but not really important. And that other times we work on that which really isn't ur urgent, but it's really not important either. And then, of course, there are times where we work on that which is urgent and important. Our child is sick. We've got to take care of them that it's both urgent and important. But things about the kingdom of God are so often not urgent. But, of course, we know that they are the most important. The saving of souls, the reaching of this world, the serving of God, forgiveness, these are things that don't feel urgent, but when you think of them in the light of eternity, uh, of a life weighed in the balance and considering, you know, the crowns and the riches and the joy of giving your life over to the Lord, allowing him to be the Lord of your life, coming after him, denying yourself, taking up your cross and following after him, there is great joy in understanding that the time is short and to work on the important non-urgent or at least the things that don't feel urgent things in life, I think we lead, would lead to great fruit in so many of our lives. So if all that is the case, and if I'm to understand that my life is simply a vapor, then how do I make plans in this life? What decisions do I make? What perspective should I have? Well, James tells us in verse 15, he says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. In other words, James here announces to us that for the believer, we have to have a concept about our lives that our plans, our future, belongs to the Lord. Our plans belong to Christ. That's why James says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, of course, this isn't 
some kind of mechanical sta uh, statement or saying that James is proposing. I think Paul the Apostle is a great example of this phrase in motion. There are times in Paul's life, Acts 18, verse 21, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 19, where he says, if the Lord wills, I'll go to such and such a place, I'll do such and such a thing. But there are other times in Paul's life, Acts 19, verse 21, Romans 15, verse 28, 1 Corinthians 16, where Paul makes plans but does not say the words or use the phrase, if the Lord wills. And I think it's clear in looking in every one of those passages about Paul's life that he was always concerned with the Lord's will, always submitted to the leadership of Jesus, and always willing to say, listen, here's my plan, but if Jesus wants something different, then I'll do something different. I'm going to do this or do that only under the leadership of the Lord Jesus Christ in my life. It's more than a mechanical saying, but it's more of a heart attitude. In other words, I would say it like this. If you do say it, make sure that you say it with meaning. Don't be a hyper-religious person who goes around doing your own will, but saying, you know, if the Lord wills, before you really just do whatever it is that you want to do. So if you say it, say it with meaning. Really earnestly, sincerely believe that this is the statement over your life, if the Lord wills. And if you don't say it, if it doesn't come uh, from your lips, well, then you should still intend it or mean it inside of your heart, inside of your life. And so if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. We will make plans. We will make decisions. But we want all of them to come under the leadership of Jesus Christ. Now, in making that statement, Paul then announces to them, you are boasting in your arrogance. You know, because they were living opposite of this, because their plans were not submitted to Christ, Paul announced to them that they were living an arrogant kind of lifestyle. And, you know, for a believer who has been bought with the blood of Jesus, has been delivered from their captivity to sin and slavery to the devil, to have been delivered to the kingdom of righteousness, and then assume, that even after I've been bought by Jesus, my life is my own. That is in Paul's, uh, or excuse me, in James's verbiage, that is boastful arrogance. It is better for us to say, listen, my life is now not my own. Uh, I belong to another for he has purchased me and won the right to lead my life and be the Lord of my life. So then James says in verse 17, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. <clears throat> now, this is a great statement, uh, sometimes taken in isolation to describe the sin of uh, omission. And, uh, you know, there are sins of commission in the Bible, plenty of them. Oftentimes, the church specializes in talking about sins of commission uh, exclusively. You know, basically, a sin of commission is I'm committing 
a sin. The Lord says, don't cross this line, and I make a decision to cross that line. But a sin of omission is the Lord says, cross this line. You know, go into all the world and make disciples. And instead of obeying him, I resist and I do not obey. That's a sin of omission. And James is talking about a specific kind of sin of omission here in verse 17. When he says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. That is a sin of commission. Uh, or excuse me, that is a sin of omission. But I think James here is talking about something more specific than just technical sins of omission in general. I think he's saying, listen, you now know the right thing to do. What is the right thing that they knew to do? Well, to live under the control of their master in heaven, to say, if the Lord wills, to understand that their life is a vapor, that it belongs to Jesus. And so to know that you're to live a life under the control of your master in heaven, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and then to live uh, against that principle and to live as if it's your life, your career, your relationships, your lifestyle, and that it all belongs to you, that your money belongs to you, that your time belongs to you, that it's all that it all is yours rather than a stewardship from heaven. Then I think James is saying, you now know the right thing to do. This life is not your own. You're to say if the Lord wills, but if you know that and don't do it, you fail to live that way, then you are living uh, in sin. It is important for us to say, listen, you know, I want Jesus to have full access to every single part of my life. I want him to be honored through my life. I want him to direct the affairs of my life. And I want him to be the Lord in my life. You know, when I was young, here I am sitting here today, in this studio teaching into a microphone. When I was a young man, before I began walking with the Lord, I knew of him and had professed at one time a relationship with him, but I was out of step with him absolutely during this season in my life. And for a couple of years, I really began to believe that in my future, the thing that I was interested in was media. I wanted to be in front of cameras and behind microphones. I, I loved that kind of work. And I'd been able to take some really great classes that had been provided in our community that had led me to believe that this was something that would be a part of the future that uh, was going to be mine. Totally void of God's plan, totally void of God's leadership. I wasn't thinking about him or his plans. And eventually I came to the place where I did uh, surrender myself to him and wanted to pursue his desires for my life. And, you know, initially I felt like those desires were completely opposite the initial things that I had longed for. But as the years went by, I found myself in front of more and more cameras behind more and more microphones, albeit with a completely different purpose than I think I'd initially anticipated. But the Lord had put those desires, I think, inside of my mind and heart 
but he wanted to use them for his kingdom and for his purposes. The Lord wants to author your career, your relationships, your life. And so live under the submission and uh, leadership of Jesus Christ for your life. And now that we know to do that, he says, for you to know that and fail to do it, for him it is sin. Now another thing that we need to understand is that our stuff is eternal. You know, if we really want to evidence that our lives are lives in love with Christ, we have to understand that our stuff, our belongings, our riches in this life, the things that we own and possess, they are of eternal value and nature. He says in verse 1 of chapter 5, listen to this. He says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Now, this is a fairly severe statement that James is making. And I should mention that there is a little bit of debate as to who James is speaking to. The question really centers around this idea of, is he speaking to wealthy Christians, believers, who are uh, handling their treasure wrongfully, or is he speaking to wealthy non-believers who are persecuting uh, the church? And there are some things in these next few verses that read like persecution, read as if they've come from uh, not the life of a believer, but someone who has not yet received Christ into their life. But it seems fairly odd to consider that James would all of a sudden put a parenthesis in here where he's speaking to a group of people who are likely to never pick up his epistle and uh, read it and consider what he has to say to them. I take this as James speaking under the influence of God's spirit to wealthy believers in the early church who were mishandling their finances so much so that it was as if they were actually persecutors because they weren't supporters of the early church. But but James tells them here, he says, listen, your, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. We need to understand that our money is of eternal value. You know, and I think it's probably important for me to mention here in a passage like this because I've seen many who are you know, very well-intentioned who read passages like this in the New or the Old Testament and almost preach an anti-wealth, anti-money uh, uh, kind of message. And there is a wrong, uh, wrongful emphasis on finances and prosperity and all of that. I do not believe that God wants everyone on earth, all of his believers, to be wealthy. Eventually, in his presence for all of eternity, we will be incredibly wealthy. That's our future. That's our heritage in the future for all of eternity. Not that we'll be infatuated with wealth. We'll be infatuated with God. But some preach an anti-money 
uh, message in this day and age, almost as a response to those who overemphasize wealth and overemphasize riches. I, I think that it's worth stating that God is not anti-wealth, but he is anti-misappropriation of funds. You have plenty of people in, 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 in not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament who loved the Lord and had means and used it well. There's a reason why men like Barnabas and Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and Zacchaeus were strong members of that initial church. But there's also a reason why Paul told Timothy to speak to the people in his congregation who were people of means. They were there and the exhortation wasn't give it all away uh, or anything like that. They were to be good stewards. They were to be generous, but they were just not to trust in the uncertainty of riches. But in understanding that our wealth, our money is eternal, James announces here, he says, listen, for these people who had misappropriated their funds, they've used it unwisely. He says, you should weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your stuff is eternal and payback belongs to God. Sometimes those miseries will reveal themselves in this life. Oftentimes, however, these particular miseries will reveal themselves in the next life. I heard the story once of a couple of farmers, one who wouldn't work on Sundays and one who did. And at the time of the harvest, the one who did work on Sundays, uh, he received a great harvest. And he said to his neighbor who wouldn't work on Sundays so that he could honor a day to be with his family and to worship the Lord, he said, apparently God doesn't mind that I have neglected that part of my life. And his friend said, well, God doesn't always settle his accounts during uh, October when they were harvesting. So there are times, of course, where God will settle accounts with us in eternity and sometimes in this life as well. He says in verse 2, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. In other words, they'd accumulated riches in the form of food. And that food, they had so much of it that they could never eat it. And it rotted inside of their barns. They had so many garments that they would never wear and they were moth eaten. And so it behooves us to use our riches, our finances, our treasure for the glory of God. Let's not store them up just for ourselves in a way in which we'll never use them. And I'm planning on and desiring to give an inheritance to my children and hopefully to my children's children as, as the Proverbs state. I hope to have a little nest egg set aside so that my wife and I can enjoy some semblance of just rest and peace and retirement in our older years so that we're not a burden to our children when we're way past our uh, working, earning years and all of that. But at the same time, we should be using the things God entrusts into our hands for his glory. And he says in verse three, listen, you know, your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Be conscious of the reality that Jesus is coming. 
and live financially accordingly. Now, the reality here is that our faith really does impact everything about our lives, including the way that we use our finances. Notice what he says in verse 4. He says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, in reading those verses, what I stated already was that our faith impacts everything about us. Notice first that James cries out against these people because they'd kept back wages from their workers. They were fraudulent with their employees. And faith and the gospel, when it works its way inside of our hearts, will make us very generous people. But at, at least it will make us fair. We'll pay wages. We'll give what is owed. So fair people. And then secondly, he says to them in verse 5, You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You know, faith and the gospel will make us very sacrificial people, but at the very least, it will cause us to av avoid extreme self-indulgence. That's what these people were about, and we really need to search our hearts about that particular matter. And then lastly, in verse 6, he says, You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Faith and the gospel will at, at, at most turn us into missionaries for the cause of Christ but at the very least, it will make us friends of the church. And these people were condemning and murdering and hurting the work of the gospel. And so faith permeates absolutely everything in our lives. It permeates our time. It permeates our treasure. It is all to belong to Jesus. We are to see it as a stewardship given to us from our Lord in heaven. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.